Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay, driving a car, also <laughs> from the Movie Proposal podcast. And with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh Lindsay. I think it's absolutely hilarious that we're doing this after we know this was an epic fail when I tried it. So hopefully you'll have better luck. Hopefully. I don't even know about, is this legal? It's probably not safe, but <laughs> it's for art, right? We yeah. sacrifice for art. Uh, and please if you're not do- watching, it is art. It is beautiful. <laughs> the framing's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We have Josh's lovely head through the steering wheel. Uh, please, viewers, do not try this at home. Oh, yes. we got to have the disclaimer. Thank you. And I need to introduce our trusty, dusty research extraordinaire, probably going to take over as MC of this podcast, because I'm probably going to lose signal, Jason Rugg. Hey there. Hey, Jason. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like I am back at home, but Josh is on the road. So, uh, Josh, are you visiting family this weekend? And we've lost him already. <laughs> I am. I'm in Springfield. <laughs> Sorry. Am I back? Kind of. <laughs> kind of. All right. I'm, I'm going to say it's been wonderful seeing everyone, and I'm really sorry about this, but I'm probably going to disappear. All right, Josh. Thanks so much for trying. Okay. All so, right, so Christian, yeah, us, we're what's been going on? We're recording on a Saturday because we had a really busy week. I didn't get back from uh, Red Rock. So the last time I came to you, I was coming to you from Cedar City, Utah, where we uh, were just uh, starting the Red Rock Film Festival. And that is now completed. I've come back home and I just want to give you a little bit of a report about what happened at Red Rock. It was a very interesting festival. And yet again, I learned some fascinating lessons. Uh, This film festival is a 16-year-old festival from the looks of the website and all the other things. It looks like it was a pretty robust festival. There were lots of films that were there, lots of really good films. Uh, When we got there, however, it was really a different story. Um, The festival director um, was actually an awesome guy and I think he has a wonderful heart and he really wanted to uh, you know have this film festival and he put a lot of time and effort into the infrastructure virtually for the website and making sure that people knew what films were playing but there really wasn't a very good online festival viewing option. So everything was really supposed to take place in person, but there wasn't a lot of um, audience recruitment or advertising done. So there was really very little outreach that was done to the community to bring in different groups, like for our films, a veterans group, let's say. Um, And so the audiences were just really not there. Um, In my very first screening, uh, the only people that were in my audience were the filmmakers that were before me uh, with a film called Veterans Long Journey Home and the filmmakers that were later in the day for a film called Dog Valley. And that day, we all ended up just watching each other's films because there were no audience members in attendance. The second day when my film screened, I had one audience member and um, Veterans Long Journey Home had zero. 
And Dog Valley had a few more because their story took place in Cedar City, Utah. They were from the Salt Lake area, so they were able to get a lot of people to the screenings. Um, But it was just a really different uh, scenario for the rest of us. I do think that COVID played a part in the situation, but I also think that the festival really had one organizer and uh, was very limited in money and time in order to do the outreach. So I think if I was to do it over again, I probably would have um, done a little bit more research, I think, and uh, tried to figure out, uh, you know, what was going on with the festival. That being said, I had a wonderful time getting to know the filmmakers. Uh, Frederick Marks uh, is the director of Veterans Long Journey Home, the film that was before ours. And he is the one of the producers of Hoop Dreams. So that was known as one of the best American documentaries. It was um, just really an amazing film. And he has gone on to do a lot of uh, incredible projects, most recent of which these veterans films that focus on listening to veterans and healing that takes place when you do. So it really fit well with the stories that we are telling. And, you know, Frederick and I even talked a little bit about how we could partner together in the future uh, to uh, maybe do, um, you know, virtual festivals in different towns where we bring our films together. So that was neat. And we also connected with Dave Lindsay and Jason, who are with uh, producers of Dog Valley, which is a um, sort of a true crime uh, documentary story about a uh, a murder that was committed in Cedar City. And it was an incredibly well-done documentary that exposed uh, the evils of hate crime, really. So I was happy to meet with them, network with them. The most amazing thing that happened in that festival is in our second screening, that one person that came, the screening was at Fiddler's Fun Center. She loved the film so much. She was so sad that nobody was there. She asked the um, the movie theater if they would consider doing an extra screening. And so she and a woman named Jerry helped us uh, do an extra screening, uh, thanks to Sadie and Kyle, who were the owners of the theater. And we did an extra screening, and they all invited their friends. They promoted it on their Facebook pages. And we had about 40 people that showed up uh, for a third screening there. And the uh, theater even gave us the proceeds for the tickets that they sold. So that was an incredible blessing. People responded amazingly well to the film and were so happy that they were there. And somehow, I think probably because of that effort, we won the Audience Award for Documentary. So it ended up really, uh, really great. And we were so thankful to have met the wonderful people of uh, Cedar City, Utah. And while we were there, we also got accepted into the Flathead Lake International Cinema Fest in Polson, Montana. I think I may have said that. And as well as the Channeler International Film Festival in Channeler, Arizona, both of those which will be uh, in uh, January, at the end of January. And then we won uh, an honorable mention at the Mediterranean Film Festival Cannes in France. So it was our first international film festival. And, you know, we were super, super excited about that. They're not sure if they're going to have a screening or not. It's an in-person festival that, of course, is on hold because of COVID. So time will tell with that. Uh, But but that's the exciting news that's happened over the last week. Things are kind of moving fast and furious. So 
uh, you know, that's the update from us. We're still interviewing people to bring on interns to kind of help us uh, moving forward with film festival run and the release of our film. Um, still trying to raise money because we have none and <laughs> we really need, we really need, we have bills that we need to pay and overhead that we have to meet. So so yeah, that all is still going on. And we're still doing uh, dealing with legal matters, tying up some uh, some relationship uh, documents and as well looking forward to distribution agreements. And so along that vein, I thought it might still be important to continue talking about our legal support staff, if you will. So Jason, we have a special guest this week. Yeah, actually, before we get to that, can I ask, yeah. do we have an update from Boston yet? Oh, my goodness. We have an update from Boston. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, while we were there, we learned that we won the best feature documentary at the Boston Film Festival, as well as the best editing award. So that for me, I was thrilled about that because that's our first award for our editor, Bill Ebel. And that means that all the principals, Bill Ebel, uh, the editor, um, Jeff Kurtnacker, the composer, and me, the director, all won individual awards along with all of our documentary awards. So I'm just that's super awesome. happy for Bill. Yeah. So well, thanks congrats. for asking. Yeah, congrats on all of that. I'm, I'm sad that Josh wasn't here to actually hear that. I know. <laughs> He's been asking for months. <laughs> I know, I know. But uh, yeah, that that is awesome. Sounds like this last week had some really big ups instead of a lot of downs. So that's yeah, that's good. That's really good. it. Was a really fun that. week. Thank okay. you. Well, um, so we have a special guest um, who will be coming on in just a moment. Um, do you want me to read the bio now, Christian? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so. The, his last name isn't actually included in the bio. So do you want to say his first Yeah, name? it's John Scanlon. John Scanlon. Actually, why okay. don't we just bring him on? John, turn right. your camera on. John, come on. Hi, everybody. Hey, this is hey John Scanlon, everybody. The lawyer for the girl who wore freedom, but he's also a longtime friend of mine for 30 years. He's the godparent of Hunter, who, of course, you know, kicked off this film. So uh, he and his wife, Heidi, are the godparents. So uh, anyway, that's not his official bio. I'll let Jason. <laughs> and that's I'll why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I'll let Jason read that. Yeah, so here's his bio. Uh, John is an attorney with a multidisciplinary entertainment practice ad advising clients in film and television financing, production, broadcasting, and distribution, as well as individual writers and artists. John has served as general counsel to six companies, has helped launch, finance, and operate businesses in several industries, and advises clients from individuals to multinationals on a wide range of legal matters. Since producing and directing his first film, Sing, in Uganda in 2006, John has worked in various capacities on over eight films and television projects. He currently serves as a producer and legal counsel on two independent feature films, God's Spy, the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and A River Dark, a fictional World War II drama. His other credits include documentaries, Neat, the story of Bourbon, Honor Flight, and I don't know how to pronounce this one. Is that Previve? Previve? Yep. Okay, Previve. Yeah. And of course, The Girl Who Wore Freedom. John earned his JD at Georgetown and his BA at the University of California, Davis, where he was also a professional firefighter. Which I did not know until I read your bio. I don't know how I missed that one. <laughs> I think that's why I put it in there, Christian. I always like to surprise you. Well, that's the that second awesome. firefighter I know of who's working on the film. <laughs> Interesting. 
Yeah, our David Patterson, one of our producers, uh, is also a firefighter, and uh, I have such incredible respect for those first responders. So thank you for that. And I am just blown away by how your resume has expanded since I first met you 30 years ago. Yeah, well. But that, you know, when I met you, you weren't doing entertainment law way back then. How did that happen? Uh, that's a great question. I I started out on kind of a traditional uh, law school to big firm track, and I practiced here in the Washington, D.C. market and then in London for several years, mainly working with large corporations that were issuing securities into the U.S. financial markets. Uh, it was a great practice. It was a lot of fun, and I worked with some great people, uh, but I decided to come back to the States and be a, uh, the general counsel, which is the chief legal officer inside of .com in about 2000. And uh, after that company crashed, I went on to do it again a couple of times. And I found I really enjoyed uh, entrepreneurship and uh, helping small companies sort of stand up and grow and spread their wings and fly. And uh, so I set up my own practice doing that. And in 2006, I uh, went and shot a movie of my own in Uganda, as uh, Jason mentioned. And uh, that that kind of, I got bitten by the bug, I'd say, uh, as far as filmmaking goes. I managed to get that on TV a couple of times and uh, having done the whole filmmaking process from you know inception through distribution, I uh, started looking for ways to get involved in other projects. And with a legal background, it was easy to hold myself out as someone who could help producers do their thing. So that evolved into my current practice, which is, uh, as Jason summarized it so nicely a minute ago. Yeah. So, Jason, uh, please feel free to jump in. Jason is a young filmmaker also, so I'm sure you may have some questions. But, um, you know, we connected with with you early on in this process. Uh, but I have to say, um, you know, I am still learning and I think I made a lot of mistakes along the way. So I'm sure there's a lot of things I need to do differently going forward. I would love for you to talk about uh, when somebody is just starting a film, um, I know that having a relationship with a lawyer is one of the very first things you need to have. But can you explain to us if in an ideal world, when would you be brought on to a project and what exactly do you see yourself doing? Sure. Um, I think the maybe one of the most valuable pieces of advice I could give to anybody starting out in uh, the movie making world is if you're a producer, think of yourself as the CEO of a startup that's going to make one product. You're going to be making one film and you're going to release it into the world. And that's the business life cycle of your of your company. So if you have friends who are small business owners, it's great to talk to them about their impressions about when it's good to bring a legal person in. My recommendation, of course, would be as early as possible and maintain a relationship with that legal advisor uh, as you reach several critical steps. And there are three I'll mention for filmmakers. One is the uh, point at which you start raising money to finance your film. And there are a lot of pitfalls in this area. Uh, many filmmakers run afoul of rules they don't even know exist in the area of trying to raise uh, money to finance their film. For instance, uh, and I'll just throw this out there because I know this is a landmine that a lot of people step on without knowing it. Uh, if someone approaches you and says, hey, look, I'll raise money for your film. You've got a budget of $100,000. Uh, why don't you give me 10% of what I raise? You can have the rest and, uh, and go make your film. Uh, unless that person is a Fender registered broker dealer, that transaction is breaking the law and by implication, so are you as the filmmaker by accepting that person uh, onto your team to raise money on your behalf in that kind of uh, you know, contingent percentage-based 
compensation. So uh, I hate to break it to you if you're in the middle of that yourself, but uh, okay, explain that, that to me because I actually made that proposition to people. I never did it, yeah. but why is that illegal again? So it's a very common practice, and and not just in the film industry. Any any business where you have kind of an upfront capital need, uh, you'll find people who hold themselves out as finders and try to collect money from investors or others to give to you to launch your business. Uh, with rare exceptions, unless that person is actually registered as a broker dealer, they're not legally allowed to accept a percentage of what they raise as compensation for what they bring you. Uh, that, that transaction, and there's a a set of guidelines that the SEC uses to determine whether they've crossed the line, but it's it's uh, it, it's not legal unless they're registered and set up to do that uh, with FINRA. So, so it's a securities law violation technically, and it, you can get in trouble as the issuer. Uh, what the is equity. the proper way to do that? If someone says, "I'll help you raise money," what's I mean? Other than is there another way other than finding a person that has that kind <clears throat> of background? Well, it's it's a complicated area of the law, and I don't want to I don't want to give legal advice over the over Zoom. Um, but there are ways that you can do it. Uh, a, a safe harbor is that if you are the company itself, for instance, you for your company making the Girl Who Wore Freedom, you can raise money without worrying about it. Uh, you can even compensate yourself as a producer and as a director out of the funds you raise without crossing any of those lines. So if you're within the company that is issuing the equity in exchange for the money to make the film that's a, a safe harbor. I see. Boy, that is complicated. So, all right. So bring you on early on, Jason, do yeah. you have, and then the second one is make sure you avoid landmines. And Jason, what and about me, your question? I'm yeah. sorry. Let me just quickly make the last, the, the, so I mentioned in the, in the life cycle of your film is you set out to make it number one, when you raise money, number two, when you start bringing on talent, especially if you're the producer and you're hiring a director uh, or hiring anybody else, an editor, a, a cinematographer, someone to score the film. You need a lawyer at that point to draft those agreements for you so that you make sure that all of their work product is legally owned by the film production company. And then third, and this is, you know, there are points along the way where you're going to keep your hand in with your legal advisor, but the third and most critical moment in the life cycle of the film is when you get to, uh, uh, well, clearance of the film, in other words, making sure that you own everything that you're putting on screen or have a license to use it. And then finally, the distribution of the film when you make that agreement, ultimately with whoever's going to screen your film for audiences. Wow. It sounds like you really need somebody from the beginning to the end. <laughs> That's what I'd recommend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jason, what was your question? Yeah. So my question was, um, so about the fundraising and about someone who you know takes 10%. Is that at all different if it's a non-for-profit company? So is there is there a different way to go about that? Um, like Christian's film was initially, and is it still under a non-for-profit? Well, it, it it's an LLC, but it's fiscally okay. uh, sponsored. So um, yeah, so we we raise donations. That is kind of a good question, John. Can you have people raising donations for you? Mm -hmm. Is that different or the same? It's different because uh, if somebody is contributing, if somebody is making a tax deductible donation to an entity in order to further that entity's mission, there's no expectation that at some point down the line, they're going to get a return on that investment, right? They're just writing you a check, taking the tax deduction. And from that point on, whatever return you make on the film is yours to do with as you wish. That is not a security. So the securities laws aren't implicated by someone raising money in that way. 
So you can compensate people who raise contributions to a nonprofit, uh, and and the laws are somewhat more lenient in that regard. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That, so that answers so that question. Yeah. Thank you. So what I'm saying, so what, just to clarify, so let's say I had somebody that said, yes, I'm going to go out and try to bring in donations for you. They do. And then I, could I pay them as a subcontractor or something like that, or just for helping as part of my team? We should have an offline conversation about that <laughs> and I'll give you advice. <laughs> I, I don't want to do it here. <laughs> yeah, understood. Okay. So, all right. So you have to have somebody from the beginning to the end and uh, you know, I know as we've gone through this process, some of the most important things are, you know, partner agreements that you're making when you're forming your company, deal memos that you're making with crew that you hire. Um, and that does take a lot of time on the part of an attorney. But most young filmmakers like me or people that are listening to this podcast don't have a ton of cash and lawyers are super expensive. So how, you know, A, how much should we expect this to cost us and B, um, you know, what is the best way to work out a payment deal with a, a lawyer? Sure. Well, that's an important conversation to have up front with your prospective counsel. Uh, and I would say that most lawyers charge by the hour. So we're like a contractor in that we keep a record of the time that we work on your behalf and then bill you monthly uh, usually and, and expect to get paid on that basis. Uh, but if you're if you find someone who's entrepreneurial, flexible, and/or interested in being a part of the filmmaking process themselves, you can sometimes work out deals. And lawyers like myself, who have a sole practice and don't answer to uh, partners, can be as flexible as they want to. Um, I've done deals with companies where uh, I have a creative contribution to make uh, to the filmmaking process. I have something to bring to the table as a producer, and I'll take a producing credit. Uh, in partial exchange for some of my fees. Uh, the other thing a lawyer often appreciates is an opportunity to be paid a certain amount uh, without having to worry about billing and, and time records and submitting invoices and waiting for those to get paid. So if you have some funds and you can say, look, if I pay you X up front, uh, how far will that get me? You know, can I, will that, will that allow me to do uh, everything that I need to do between now and signing the distribution deal? Uh, and some lawyers will, you know, offer you a discount if you say, can we do this on a fixed fee basis and here's a check. So I would just ask the lawyer to think about ways to be creative and flexible as far as, as funding goes. But, you know, keep in mind at the end of the day <clears throat> that most lawyers are more comfortable uh, billing by the hour. Um, as a profession, we tend to be risk averse, uh, which is why it's, it's uh, sometimes hard to find lawyers who are willing to work with filmmakers. As we all know, the filmmaking business is a is a casino. Uh, so um, I think it's it's almost hard. It's almost important, as important as your fee structure, to find a lawyer who is temperamentally a match with you and and uh, either wants to go on an adventure with you and and uh, and see what happens on the road. Uh, it, but in many cases, they're just you know they want to they want to play a safer and more predictable role for themselves. Yeah, and so. One other question in terms of we talked last week to uh, Trevor Schmidt, who was our intellectual property lawyer. Mm -hmm. Are there entertainment attorneys that function in both capacities or, you know, is it important to have somebody that specializes in IP law? 
Well, I think you, you know, ideally you would have an IP law specialist as a part of your team. There are uh, areas of IP law that are very complicated. Um, and uh, while, you know, you can find general practitioners who will do both and, and can serve in that regard in a pinch. Uh, for instance, when I think about clearance on a film and about making sure that you have a license to every piece of music you have in the score, uh, every image that you have on screen, every subject that appears, uh, all of those kinds of clearance issues are something that that attorney at the end of the day is going to have to opine about to your errors and omissions uh, insurer and certainly in your distribution agreement with regard to your ownership of everything that you're asking them to put on a screen. Mm. So you definitely want an IP lawyer in the mix uh, you know, when, when it comes time to do clearance and when it comes time to handle the rest of your, your IP portfolio. If someone has experience making films, they will know where those points are. So your, you know, your, your, uh, your, your corporate attorney can help you, you know, identify when things are coming up that need an IP lawyer's input. Um, but, uh, you know, those sorts of things are fair use issues. If you're using material that's, uh, that's in the public domain or, you know, clips of newscasts, that sort of thing. Um, how to clear those properly and make sure that you're not crossing any lines and using material that someone else owns. Uh, those are things that, that take a fair amount of analysis and, uh, and an understanding of that, that area of the law. Hmm. Well, as you're thinking about projects that you've worked in the past, I mean, you have a huge, huge resume, it looks like now. What are some of the biggest pitfalls that you would encourage us young filmmakers to avoid? If you could uh, sort of give us, you know, your top three to five. Sure. Um, you know, again, uh, drawing on my experience uh, as someone who's advised a lot of startups, uh, a lot of the pitfalls are going to be very similar to what you run into with any startup. Um, when you first get the idea for your film and you start to run with it, there's this momentum of creative excitement combined with the fear that somebody else is going to get out there and do it before you do, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So you're, you're going pell-mell and you're, and you're pulling together your uh, professional you know, friends and associates to make this movie. You're bidding for their time. And if they're talented and good at what they do. They've got lots of other competing projects. So you're pitching them on why this is going to be the greatest movie ever. And it's going to win awards like a, like a Christian, like one of Christian's films and just roll up festivals and, and really blow things out of the water. Uh, and, and so you're hustling, you're trying to get a team together and build enthusiasm and excitement. And it can become, uh, it, it can seem like, uh, you know, something that's going to interrupt your momentum to slow things down with individual participants and say, look, we need to get something in writing so that your participation is fleshed out and we have clear expectations about what happens if all our dreams come true and this film actually makes money. Because nobody really cares what happens to your project if it's unsuccessful, but if it becomes a success, everybody that you worked with along the way is going to show up at the end of the line and say, now you owe me for what I put into this film. And if all you have with them is a handshake deal or an exchange of emails, uh, you can get into a lot of trouble, you know, and, and spend years more time than you ever spent, you know, creating or promoting the film, uh, working out the details with people who helped you along the way, but were never properly, uh, never had their roles properly documented. So I would say, make sure that anybody who contributes anything to the film, even if it's a, uh, even if it's the name of the film or that your, your, your poster art or, you know, uh, a piece of music that you use, uh, everybody needs to be properly, everybody needs to be properly documented and have the terms of their participation in your film worked out in terms of credits and compensation. 
that would be my I think that would be my key piece of, key piece of advice. Yes, and I would back that up from experience <laughs> without going in, into any details. I for sure, uh, that was actually the exact thing that happened on our project. We haven't talked a lot about that, but that is the, the natural way you get so involved in what's happening and the creative ideas and the excitement of all of that, that you really neglect those crucial details. And um, you know, I'm paying for that, uh, you know, on this side of things. And I will certainly do things differently next time for sure. Yeah. So Jason, any other questions for, um, from your side? Yeah. Um, so more of, of what I'm doing right now is kind of towards the um, make like a teaser sort of thing and then see if we can get funding from, you know, something like that. So do you have any um, advice, not necessarily that you want to go too specific from there, on how that's different from, you know, like going full on independent, trying to make your own thing or trying to make a teaser and then try and get, you know, people involved? Is, is there a difference there legally when it comes to, you know, how to set things up? Well, uh, there's a fundamental difference in that when you when you create that kind of that kind of work, you're not trying to sell it. Uh, you're using it to pitch, uh, and your audience is very limited. You may show it to 20 people or fewer, and that's the the end of it. That's the that's the entire life cycle of the project. So, the um, uh, the, the issues around filmmaking is that at, at the end of the day, unless you're doing it for a nonprofit, it's a commercial product. It's a commercial product trying to get people to pay money to see it. So uh, that's why if you have, for instance, um, uh, I, I would say there's a, I'd call it a gray market uh, in this area of people using uh, copyrighted material from several films to compile their own trailer to kind of give uh, investors and others a sense of what the final film would look like. Uh, I've heard them called Ripomatics. I don't know if you have another name for them, but basically take a bunch of material from all these other films that you think are comparables, and then you present that to the investor and say, this is kind of what the film's going to feel and look like. Um, and I, I, I'd say that's a gray market because you're, you're still, you're not licensing the material, but everybody does it, uh, quote unquote. And uh, for the most part, uh, license holders, even if they find out about that kind of activity, which they, you know, most likely won't. Uh, look the other way. I'm not saying it's legal and I'm not saying that the rights holder can't enforce their rights against you if they find out that you're doing it. But because those things aren't sold, uh, the rights holders usually don't care that much. And frankly, uh, in many cases, they've probably done it themselves. So the, I, I would say that, you know, commercial, non-commercial line is an important one uh, for describing why things are treated differently in those two arenas. Well, one thing I can think about, however, you know, where you are, Jason, in your process is that you do have partners, I'm sure, that you are working with. And, you know, maybe they're close friends. Like in my instance, they were close friends and I didn't have contracts. <clears throat> so it it's probably very good to have. I mean, do you need to have a full-blown agree executed agreement, John, or is like a memorandum of understanding okay, uh, an email okay? What What's your recommendation there? Well, um, this is getting back to uh, sort of contracts one-on-one, but you, you ought to have uh, a piece of paper where your, what the parties are going to is clearly set forth. Uh, it needs to be dated and signed by both parties. Uh, that's the ideal. 
uh, and you need to have you know an exchange of consideration, meaning each side puts in something valuable, clear terms around what it is you're agreeing to do together, uh, and all the other basics of a contract. Uh, these days, it's well, uh, I should say it. You know, verbal contracts are enforceable uh, in most states, but uh, proving a verbal contract is very difficult. So a written contract is far preferable. Uh, you can certainly create a contract in in many states now by an exchange of emails, because uh, uh, you know consent to the agreement that you're making can be acknowledged digitally. Uh, but you know you're on the safest ground when you have what looks like a contract, uh, and is called contract or agreement for X, uh, and has both parties signed. Because then uh, there's not going to be a question if you present that document to a legal finder of fact that there was a meeting of the minds on topic X. Uh, there was an exchange of consideration. Everybody knew what was going to happen, and one party either, you know, did or didn't do what they were agreeing to do. So, hmm. get it in writing. I would strongly recommend that for sure. And then, you know, also another thing I thought about is you can, and I think maybe it is advisable when you're shopping your trailer or your pitch thing around. Can you ask people to sign an, a non-disclosure agreement, and is that something that an attorney? Uh, should draft up, or is that something a template you just take offline? What is your opinion about that? Uh, well, uh, so so at a at a high level, I would say you can certainly ask people to sign non-disclosure agreements when they look at your materials. In some cases, they won't. Uh, there are businesses out there that will simply tell you we have too high a volume of material to, that we look over, and we don't want you to be able to sue us down the line if we come up with this idea on our own or we happen to buy somebody else's work that looks a lot like yours, you know, through no fault of our own. So you will have people who will tell you, I'm not gonna sign that, but you know, there's no harm in asking. Uh, and as far as templates go, I would say, you know, not all templates are created equal. Uh, there are some that are much better than others, but if you're, um, if you're strapped for cash, uh, but you have an attorney, you can try creating your own NDA and then asking the attorney to look at it, as opposed to, you know, asking them to create it on their own. Uh, that'll usually be a little bit cheaper, but um, you know, not all not all templates are not all templates are as high quality as uh, as the really good ones, and not all NDAs are the same. You need a a non disclosure agreement that relates specifically to film. And how different is it? Um, you know, you're you started off as as not a entertainment attorney now you are in that yeah. field how important is it to work with when you're doing a film work with somebody that has experience in the entertainment industry as opposed to just a lawyer that does contract law or mm -hmm. um, <laughs> real estate law or you know some other type of law how important is it to find a lawyer that has experience and knowledge with the entertainment industry well i would say that uh again because a, a film company is you know is like any other startup in certain regards. Uh, you know, any lawyer is going to be better than no lawyer. Uh, an honest one is going to tell you just how useful they'll be. Uh, and the further away you get from sort of the core uh, uh, corporate counsel competencies of contracts and, you know, uh, uh, employment law as it relates to engaging your creatives and so forth, uh, the further they get away from that, the, you know, the less likely they'll be able to bring relevant experience to bear. But it partly depends on what role you want your lawyer to play. If you want your lawyer to be someone who's going to be able to negotiate for you, or uh, you know, even at a step below that, someone who's going to look at a contract that come in, comes into you from a distributor and say, that's not standard. Uh, 
they're asking for too much over here and they're not offering you enough over there. Uh, you really need someone who's, you know, been around the block a few times and has talked to distributors, seen distribution agreements and knows what to look for. And the same is true in, in you know, other areas where you're contracting. Um, so, uh, and I guess I would say, you know, if you're, at, if you're looking for your lawyer to be active and to help you identify issues before they surface so that you can, you know, prevent them from surfacing at all, you need to know someone who understands the life cycle of a film. Um, you know, uh, most lawyers tend to be sort of in reactive mode. They wait for their CEO to bring them problems and then they try to fix them. But someone who understands, you know, all of the bumps you're going to hit along the way as a filmmaker can be helpful because they can tell you if you do this now and it's going to cost you 500 bucks, then you avoid that problem down the road that's going to cost you 15000 mm, That's super good advice. <laughs> all right. So just a few final questions. Um, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to just uh, educate us in any way. If I haven't asked you a question that you think of you know, filmmakers should know or understand. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with, um, you know, that we haven't asked you about? Mm. I would say uh, this is, this is very self-serving, but I think it, it will serve filmmakers well too. Uh, and that is just when you sit down to start creating the budget for your film, which is, I know Christian, probably your least favorite part of, you know, setting out on this path actually having to sit down with numbers and, and think, how much is this going to cost? How much can I make here? What's left over? Um, give yourself a realistic budget for things like legal and accounting, because uh, it's hard to look at that money coming in and think, I can't put all of this on screen. I have to save some of it for, uh, you know, the basics of business growth and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but keep in mind that for most films, you have a contingency and for most films, you you have a line item for insurance. I would just view it as something like that. You know, you're, you're, you're investing money to avoid having problems later. And uh, I can tell you even, even one of the surprising things about, about making big budget films, you know, for indies, uh, is that even the people that have the most experience and have done the biggest deals and have been in the film industry for, you know, decades, uh, still do handshake deals, still, you know, cut corners and still make mistakes that wind up costing them tremendous amounts of money and a lot of grief down the line. Um, one of the, uh, you remember Robert Frost's line that good fences make good neighbors? Yes. Well, good contracts make good colleagues. Uh, yeah. You'll keep your friends if you have written agreements with them about what you're working on. You'll lose them if you have a handshake deal that both of you remember differently and your film goes on to be a big success. And you'll leave a trail of uh, dead friendships in your wake and you don't want to do that. Yeah. So it's easier I, if your film isn't a success. Like just if, <laughs> if all your films are flops, everything's good. <laughs> Everything has a silver lining. Yes. Uh, yeah. If your film's a flop, you can get together a year after your release and have a, a kind of a cry into your beer, you know, uh, anniversary party with your, with your friends and commiserate about what might've been. Um, but uh, yeah, the alternative is better. It's better to have a hit and have everybody be yeah. happy. Well, and, you know, I I will say, you know, I'm the first one to admit, we jokingly say this podcast should be called How Not to Make a Documentary because I have broken every single rule for, um, you know, for making a documentary and really learned the hard way. And that's certainly true here. I honestly never thought our film would be finished. 
I didn't think that I would get it done. I was just kind of thought I was just one step at a time. And I didn't think that it would do as well as it's done. So um, I didn't budget well in the beginning or really understand those things. I didn't take myself seriously. And I've paid the price for a lot of that. So I certainly would say if you're listening to this podcast today, I'm begging you to listen to John's advice because it's, you know, very solid, good advice and, um, you know, worth considering up front. And, you know, having a conversation with someone like John from the very beginning will save you a lot of heartbreak in the end. To that end, John, you know, when you're looking at a budget, uh, you know, for a film, anywhere from $50,000 to $500,000 to $10 million. Uh, is there any sort of, let's just say uh, the you're going to pay the lawyer an hourly fee. Is there any sort of window that you can give us? Well, a new lawyer would charge X amount, usually an hour. This is the standard going rate, but a more experienced lawyer might charge this an hour. Wow, I wish I I wish I had access to that kind of data, uh, but unfortunately, it's um, it, it it's just not available. Uh, law firms are, are pretty guarded about the fees they charge. Uh, so are individual attorneys. Um, I would say you know there's so many variables, but if you have a budget, uh, give it to your lawyer and ask them to tell you what they think it's going to cost, and then try to work out some kind of deal with them. Uh, maybe in exchange for a credit, you know, if there's someone who is interested in having a career in entertainment law, uh, they might be willing to work a little harder or at a little lower cost in exchange for a credit of some kind um, and ask them if they'll, you know, be creative on fees and maybe do a fixed fee uh, or some kind of, you know, upfront retainer um, and then some kind of discount or cap. Uh, those are all strategies you can use to try to control your legal cost. But I think what's important is to have a, a sit down with your lawyer as early as possible and say, here's my budget. Here's what things are going to look like. Uh, here's my, you know, here's my top line, at least, uh, of what I'm going to spend. Um, what's it going to cost to have you associated as the entertainment counsel for this project? And then go from there. Um, you're, you're, you know, specialists are going to be more expensive. Uh, younger attorneys, probably less. But then again, they may spend more time on your project learning as they go uh, and may not, you know, add as much value to you as, as you're, as you're proceeding. So, yeah, certainly great advice. Well, uh, let me ask you, I mean, you are super busy, but are you taking new clients? Like if people are listening to this, can they reach out to you? And are you still interested in taking film projects with people that are just starting out? I am, I am always happy to talk to filmmakers. I love filmmakers. I love filmmaking. Um, and, uh, and I'm, you know, uh, usually happy to take a call. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm being selective about clients, but I am still taking new clients in this area. So, uh, you know, by all means, reach out. If it looks like we might be a good fit, I'd love to talk to you. And I will be a cheerleader for you if you're making a movie, because I know how hard it is and I know what a beautiful process it is and, uh, and, and, you know, what potential it has. So, so two questions. One, um, are there any kinds of genres or, you know, movies that you really love making? <laughs> and then two, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, gosh. Yeah. It, you know, that's a great question. I am my I, I would say my film tastes are uh, eclectic, but uh, oddly, I've wound up working. Um, uh, I've done a lot of documentary work. 
but I also, my, my weird little niche that I've developed is uh, World War II dramas told from the German perspective. So there's a good German standing up against the, the Nazis and the Fuhrer, and uh, they may be in different contexts, but uh, as far as that part of the film world goes, if you're making a movie in that space, you need to get in touch with me because I kind of own it. So <laughs> There's um, not a lot of those out there. So well, uh, you'd, you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed how many people there are trying to tell stories in the niche. It's very strange. It's like a, a weird little filmmaking club, and uh, we all know each other. Um, that's I'm, so funny. I'm, I'm exaggerating there, but yeah. So that that seems to be the you know that seems to be the area that I'm being I'm being pushed into. Uh, but no, I've done uh, I the films I'm working on now include um, uh, there's 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 a really cool project about Roberto Clemente, the Pittsburgh Pirates player, uh, who was a Puerto Rican and uh, a wonderfully philanthropic and and noble human being. Uh, who lost his life in a plane crash trying to deliver relief supplies from his native Puerto Rico to Nicaragua during an earthquake. Great, great story. Um, and uh, I'm working on that, which is, you know, six-figure documentary all the way up to a $20 million narrative fiction piece that will, uh, I, I, I was going to say be in theaters, but, you know, we'll see if there's ever a theater screening of anything again uh, in our lifetimes. Um, so, yeah, honestly, they run the gamut. And, uh, and so... Uh, indie films uh, are certainly the you know the focus, and um, and and really a range of projects. So, so how can we people get in touch with you? Uh, well, what's what's most useful? I, let let me give you my phone number. Is my name on screen anywhere? Uh, yes, that? it is. Well, it's on your Zoom thing. So okay, yeah, John Scanlon. Well, if your if your audience can see that, put a little at symbol between John and Scanlon. And then drop a dot com on the end. That's my email. It's John J O H N the at symbol Scanlon dot com. And yeah. I put that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, we'll add that to the show notes. Thank you so much. This has been super educational. We really appreciate your time my today. Pleasure. We appreciate what you've done for the girl who wore freedom. It's really been incredibly meaningful. So thank you so much. So proud to see what you're doing with that film, Christian. And thanks for having <laughs> me on. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.